I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So for those who haven't tuned in for a while, we're now releasing our podcast every other week. This gives us a chance to work on some projects to help us improve our, our reach as a podcast. And of course, give Todd time for his tropical vacations so that he has enough vitamin D to uh, make it through the Portland winters. Yeah, I need to do some of that then. I'm I'm falling behind. Well, you could just take your podcasting stuff and you could join us from the beach. I'll do it. Of course, we don't I'm have down. the money to sponsor you, so you'd have to be on your own dime. But Well, the listeners of this show are going to take care of that directly. <laughs> do we, we start uh, a GoFundMe page for your uh, beach vacations? Yeah. Yeah, sounds like a good plan. So speaking of listeners, we received a a kind shout out this last week on Twitter from a listener who said that we were one of her sources of climate optimism. And while it's an honor to be recognized, it's also a reminder of the role of listeners in helping expand our, our reach as a podcast. So for others that are out there that appreciate what you get here on the pod, whether it's a chance to learn about you know climate solutions dose of you know hope to keep you fighting climate change todd's mediocre jokes take time to share share us with your friends and followers a simple you know post on social can help grow our community excuse me how dare you sir <laughs> i've got dad bod and dad jokes it's not a bad combination so although many of us don't follow the world of climate news nearly everyone pays attention to the weather and this puts meteorologists who deliver our daily forecast in a critical position to help educate the general public on how weather and climate relate. So this week, we decided it was time to get a meteorologist on the show to join us and talk about the role they play and the challenges that, that come with it. But before we go there, Todd, I heard you got a reason for hope for us. I do. France has decided to leave the Energy Charter Treaty. And so if you don't know what this is, back in the 90s, uh, a bunch of lame-ass countries (laughs) joined this treaty where they could sue governments for lost profits if they made policy changes so big oil companies and other companies could just sue a government if they passed some law that affected them. It sounds similar to some of that weak language that was in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, if you remember, and it, it got called out. You know, they, they caught it, called it out for what it was. Um, critics have estimated that the final cost in compensation to fossil fuel companies could rise to more than a trillion dollars. So it's pretty substantial. France is the largest country to withdraw, and uh, Spain, Netherlands, and Italy have already done so. So now it's time for these other major world economies to quit being weak and follow the leadership of these nations and recognize that this treaty is obviously in direct conflict with their climate goals. So the U.S., don't be weak. Get out of this thing. But yes, it is hopeful. France France stepped up. I thought when you paused there, you said France. I thought you were going to say, like, left the European Union. Like, it's just going to be a... <laughs> Just like a big bomb, like a big mic drop, like, boom. Like, just, like, we're, like we're, we yeah. broke the news. Right that here, it happened, just like boom. No, I, I admittedly had not heard. <laughs> I admittedly had not heard of the uh, Energy Charter Treaty. I, I suppose I, I should have been aware of it. It's crazy to me that 
it even existed in the first place. But it is obviously a very hopeful sign to see these major European countries uh, backing out of it. It's probably by design that we hadn't heard of it. You know, they don't, yeah, and they if you don't, want like, to know, they don't like to share this stuff. No, it's not something you want on the front page. You don't want people knowing that oil companies can sue governments, you know, to try to protect their environment or, or you know, deal with climate change. So pivoting to our main topic today, our guest is Mike Nelson. Mike holds a, a degree in, in meteorology from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Good, uh, good badger. He has authored two books on the weather and one on climate titled The World's Littlest Book on Climate, published in uh, 2020. He has also written numerous weather pamphlets and articles for magazines. Mike now spends considerable time writing and teaching about the science of and solutions to global warming. He's received many awards for his career during his career, including 20 Emmy Awards for Weather Excellence and a two-time winner of the Colorado Broadcaster of the Year Award. In 2018, he was named a fellow of the American Meteorology Society, one of just 25 weathercasters to receive the honor. So, sharp guy and super excited to have him on the show today. Well, Mike, welcome to Climate Optimist. Nice to be here with you, Jason. Thank you for inviting me. Well, let's, let's start out, you know, we're talking about meteorology and climate today. I'm interested, how did you find your way into meteorology? Well, I'm a weather nut. Uh, there are many of us out there. Since I was a little kid in grade school, I've loved watching storms, thunderstorms, snowstorms. Uh, just it's enjoyable to me. And when you are a weather nut, very often you gravitate into meteorology because you follow the television meteorologists because you're waiting for them to tell you when it's going to snow or be a big storm. So I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. And we had plenty of active weather there and uh, decided to study meteorology at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, which is one of the bigger uh, programs in the country. Um, at the same time I was a student, I was also working part-time at an ice cream store. And uh, the local television weatherman, who was very, very good, liked ice cream, and he used to come into my shop. And so I would make sure I got to serve him, and I'd give him the biggest scoop of ice cream I could, and I'd ask him weather quick. <laughs> and this went on for quite a while until my father said, Mike, this guy comes into the store all the time. Why don't you ask him for a job? You know, if you get paid, just empty his trash, answer his phone for experience. So I did, and he hired me. He actually paid me minimum wage. So I started working in television weather when I was 18 years old, and I've been in it ever since. Fantastic. So I think one of the things that in the you know discussions about climate change, there can be confusion for folks is sort of this, this difference between climate and weather. What, in a basic sense, if you were to kind of describe for folks, is the difference between climate and weather and how might we you know explain that to others? I get that pushback because people will say to me, you talk about climate change, you can't even predict the weather five days in advance, let alone a century ahead of time. Right. And uh, I don't get upset about that anymore because it's true. Forecasting the weather is hard. In fact, climate is easier because climate is a long-term trend or average. Weather is very chaotic and fast-changing. And if you think about it, it's easier to predict climate than it is weather. For instance, I live in Colorado. If I want to escape the cold and head to Florida in January, the climate of Miami would dictate that uh, that would be a good idea. It should be warmer there. However, the weather on a given week might be very different. We might have a strong cold front that moved through Florida, 
and it could actually be sunny and 60 in Denver in January, and it might be cloudy and 55 and raining in Miami. Doesn't mean the climate of Miami changed, just means I picked a bad week to go down there. So I like to say as an analogy, weather is one play in a football game. Climate is the history of the National Football League. Makes sense. So, you know, thinking about those, those obviously the big variations we see in weather, can you kind of walk us through sort of the major variables that kind of drive our, our weather? I mean, knowing it might be different, obviously, where you are, but at a macro level, what are those, what are those variables and, and how is climate change altering them? Okay. Weather is moving warm air and cold air side to side with warm fronts and cold fronts around the globe. The global temperature is heat in versus heat out. And that's very different. It's up and down instead of side to side. So we know that the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, the analogy I like to use is that each molecule of CO2 is like a feather in a down comforter. And we're adding more and more feathers into that down comforter, trapping heat that would otherwise escape into outer space. So the global temperature is increasing. The weather will still be variable and chaotic. And so what we're doing is adding energy to the system, almost like a steroid effect. And so that means that droughts are going to be drier, heat waves are going to be hotter, floods are going to be wetter, and even at times we can have cold waves that develop because of something called Arctic amplification, which is a warming of the polar regions, which changes the effect of the jet stream. It may slow it down slightly. And the jet stream is that ribbon of air that swirls around the world like a great big river and drives the storm systems on a certain path. If you slow down the jet stream, instead of a very fast moving river, you have a slow meandering river that can give you things like that big Texas cold wave we had a couple of years ago, where the jet stream kind of bulged way southward from where it normally would be. It seems counterintuitive, but you can actually have cold waves in certain regions, even though the globe is warming up. So it really is, as we see this this change in temperature impacting these building blocks, if you will, of weather, so that we're we're seeing, you know, changes or variations to the jet stream, which may result in things that may seem counterintuitive to this idea of a warming globe, even though at a, at a macro level or, or on average, we're still continuing to warm. Call it global weirding. We're seeing stranger things that are happening as the planet gets warmer. So you, you kind of spoken to this already a little bit, but wondering how is this all changing, you know, the, the job of trying to predict the weather? It, it would seem that it's making it more complex. Well, here in Denver, it is uh, now late October. Today, our high temperature is going to be 80 degrees. Oh, wow. The average high is in the low 60s this time of year. And typically, we've already had our first snowfall. And uh, there's Trust me, there's no snow on the ground here. The only snow that's in the mountains is the man-made snow, if you will, that the ski areas are trying to put onto their slopes so they have a chance of opening before Thanksgiving. So we're seeing major changes here. Wow. I definitely, you know, associate fall in Colorado as, as you know, brisk mornings and starting to see some snowflakes. Um, so, you know, obviously there's models that you guys have. Are there ways that you're able to with those models and tools at your disposal, kind of tease out where something might be, let's say, influenced by climate change. I know it's hard to sort of distinguish whether some a singular event ties back, but that you're able to sort of tease out and say, hey, this this is different from the norm in a way that 
indicates that it was influenced by a changing climate. I think influence is great to say because we will have cold waves and heat waves and droughts and hurricanes and all of these different weather phenomena. They would occur whether or not the planet was getting warmer because of the increase in carbon dioxide. How they are impacted, though, that does change. For instance, take the hurricanes. We don't get them here in Colorado, but Ian was a pretty good example. Rapidly intensified because of the very warm water in the Gulf of Mexico. Around here, drought is a big concern. Most of the western United States is in very severe drought, and drought is not just a lack of precipitation. It's also caused by increased evaporation. We had five days in Denver that were over 100 degrees this summer. The long-term average since the late 1800s is less than one day above 100 degrees. And so with hotter temperatures, it stands to reason that we get more evaporation and we have more drought problems. So with a drought, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's intensified, you know, not just by the fact that we're not getting the precipitation, but that, you know, any moisture sources are becoming drier, right? Your, your field is getting drier because of the heat. And for Colorado and for much of the West, I mean, we are the, uh, the rooftop of the Western United States. So we're supposed to capture all that snow in the wintertime and then have it melt out into the Colorado River and head back toward uh, Southern California. 40 million people, depending on that river. And we've seen the results of the hotter, drier conditions in the lake levels in Lake Powell and Lake Mead. Uh, when we get an earlier melt out in the springtime of the snow, more of that just goes into the ground and then eventually evaporates into the air, then flows into those rivers. Many folks have probably heard about climate change isn't necessarily creating more hurricanes, but as we saw with Ian, it's making them more intense. You're speaking about, you know, drought conditions and the fact that climate change can make those more intense. You know, how does, let's say, climate potentially impact the snow side of things? Is it just that more of the precipitation maybe falls as rain instead of snow? I mean, are there other sort of, you know, relationships in terms of how the climate is impacting these weather patterns to make them more erratic or, or intense? You hit it there with more rain falling instead of snow. And of course, the rain doesn't uh, melt off and go into the river systems the same way that the snowpack does. So it's a major concern for us on water supply. We've seen some indications that uh, without dramatic cuts in global emissions, by the year 2060, when my grandchildren will be in their 40s, we could have a climate in Denver that is more like Amarillo, Texas is right now. And by the end of the uh, century, by 2100, Denver's climate could be more like that of northern Mexico. Wow. So, you know, as we're racing to mitigate climate impacts by reducing emissions and trying to adapt, you know, as a meteorologist, what do you see kind of your role in all of this being? The television meteorologist is the closest thing to a scientist that most Americans will ever get. They're not going to run into Catherine Hayhoe or Kevin Trenberth, noted climate scientists on the street, and say, hey, tell me about this global warming thing. Uh, and we are invited into the homes of Americans every single day. Our job as meteorologists is to explain something complicated, the weather, in easy to understand terms and do it relatively quickly in just a few minutes. And we are asked all the time by our television management, hey, there's a volcano. Can you do something to explain that? Or there's a meteor shower <laughs> or we have an earthquake. Can you talk about that? We are the station scientist. Now, 
I'm not a volcano expert and I'm not a geologist, but I know enough about those earth sciences that I can explain things to the audience. Why would I shy away from learning enough about climate change to not be able to explain that to my audience? So I've taken the time over the last few decades to learn a great deal about climate science. And I spend a fair amount of time during my TV weathercast talking about it. I connect the dots. If we've had five 100-degree days in Denver in the past summer, I don't just leave that stat out there. I say, and this is related to the fact that the Earth is warming up, and it's warming up because of the increase in carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere, and it's put there from the burning of fossil fuels. That took me 15 seconds to say. I can easily drop that little nugget in a weathercast, and my audience goes, oh, I get it. Yeah, the world's getting warmer because we keep lighting car- carbon on fire. Interesting to hear you, you know, saying connecting the dots, because I feel like that's something that's that's really, you know, essential, you know, as we're seeing changes in, in the world around us because of climate and helping remind folks that those aren't occurring, you know, in isolation. And so it seems like, you know, the fact that you said you're the, you know, scientists in folks' living room, um, you know, makes it an ideal role to play to be able to connect those dots. Because I feel like there's still an opportunity, you know, when we're talking about the, the events, you know, anytime there's wildfire in the West or a hurricane in, in the Gulf, being able to remind folks of, you know, how climate change is changing those those events, right? Well, it's important for us to do. And unfortunately, uh, because this has become a political hot potato. And there's no reason for that, except that uh, I think there's some financial reasons, perhaps, that they want to uh, delay anything being done about uh, the amount of carbon that we're emitting. But there are a lot of television weather forecasters that are reluctant to bring this up because they're afraid of getting the nasty email that is copied to their boss saying, now you've politicized the weather report and I'm not going to watch your station anymore. Now, I've been doing this for 45 years, so I'm a grizzled veteran, and uh, <laughs> my management has been very supportive, but I know that younger weathercasters that maybe have little kids and they haven't been in their market very long and they're not that well-known, that would be something that would give them pause. So as part of my mission, the American Meteorological Society has a committee called the Station Scientist Committee. I'm the past chair, and there's about a dozen television weathercasters that are on this committee. We're trying to encourage and inspire the younger generation of television weather forecasters to talk about climate change, because talking about climate change is a market exclusive that I don't want to have. Indeed. Well, and, and, you know, as you say, having that credibility with your audience puts you in a, in a unique position to, to deliver that information. It does. And generally, uh, here, and I mean, granted, I mean, NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, is in my viewing area. So Denver is a pretty intelligent about climate change market. There are others that aren't quite that good, but I get 10 attaboys for every uh, nasty gram that whenever I talk about climate change, uh, I'll get one grumpy person that says, there you go again. And then I get 10 people saying, thank you for talking about this. We really appreciate that you're mentioning it on the air. Well, I, you know, as somebody who's hosts a climate podcast, I definitely appreciate the folks like you who have the courage to, to go out there and, and state things as they are, you know, and connect those dots. I don't do the politics part on the air. I mean, uh, I, that part I'm very careful about. TV stations do not want us putting signs in our yard or anything like that because we do have audience from both sides of the political spectrum. I just present the science. 
you know, honestly, that should be the way it is, right? That this stands on its own. It's a, it's a set of facts and it's a set of facts we should all be familiar with because, you know, that in turn changes our, our behavior, right? Right. So for those who are hearing our conversation and are, you know, outside the, the world of meteorology, aren't, you know, necessarily weather geeks, are there resources that you'd suggest, uh, you know, folks look into to better understand, you know, kind of these things we're talking about, you know, in terms of nexus of, of weather and climate? I have a very good one, and it'll seem self-serving like you uh, threw me a hanging curveball to swing at, but uh, I am the co-author of the world's littlest book on climate, 10 Facts in 10 Minutes about CO2. The other author is uh, Dr. Peter Tons, who ran the uh, lab at Mauna Loa. He's probably the world's foremost authority on atmospheric carbon, and also Michael Banks, who is a local uh, environmental writer here in Denver. And so the three of us put this together. The whole idea is most people probably are not going to read an inch thick book on climate change, but they might take 15 or 20, or if they're a faster reader, 10 minutes to learn the basics. And so we made a very small little book that goes through just the basics, taking Dr. Tan's immense knowledge and my storytelling ability to boil that down to a quick read that is easy for anybody to understand. So you have the uh, QR code, which you can supply to listeners of the podcast for a free download. We don't make any money on this book. Uh, any proceeds from the printed copies go to the Citizens Climate Lobby. We wrote this out of a passion to try and get people to understand the basics of climate change. Well, that's fantastic. And, and not an easy task, I would say, trying to distill down you know, the complexities of climate change into a 10-minute you know, read. Now, COVID gave us a good opportunity to, to work from home and get some things done. <laughs> so, you know, listeners of our podcast may be wondering why in the beginning I didn't ask you, but getting around to the question that we always ask our guests, you know, when you think about efforts to address climate change, you know, what, what makes you hopeful? I have three grandchildren, uh, 10, 7, and 4, and I look into their faces and I am hopeful that they will have a great life. I've spoken to a million school kids over the years uh, talking about severe thunderstorms and tornadoes and hail and jet streams and weather balloons and also climate change. And a few years ago, I was out at uh, Lockheed Martin. They were building the new weather satellite, and I was doing a story out there. And uh, behind me were all of these technicians in their white, clean suits working on the satellite. And when I finished, uh, there were about six of them that were right behind me and they said, Hey, Mr. Nelson, can we do a selfie with you? And I said, yeah, sure. Why? And they go, you totally <laughs> came to our grade schools when we were little kids. And these guys are rocket scientists now. And so I'm hoping that I can inspire all children, including my grandchildren to understand science and understand that we are a very inventive species. We have a big problem. It's simple. Add heat. It gets warmer. It's serious for all of the reasons we talk about, sea level rise and evaporation causing more droughts and the bigger storms, but it's solvable. We can fix this. Now, the carbon that we put into the atmosphere will stay there for a long time. Its residence time is centuries. But if we can quickly decarbonize our economy, we can mitigate the impacts and have a very successful society for future generations. When I look at the massive amounts of wind and solar that have been deployed just in the last 10 years, and the fact that wind and solar have now become cheaper than fossil fuel energy, and the fact is that we can 
power our entire North American continent with renewable energy if we can just get it moved around properly with a better transmission system. So we're working on that as well, improving our, frankly, archaic transmission system that we have and making it efficient that we can move energy from source to need and power our cars and trucks with electricity. This is all going to happen. Do you know, I added this up, if you take the, the seven major car manufacturers and look at the amount of money that they are investing into electrifying their fleets, it is almost a third of a trillion dollars they are investing to do this in the next 10 to 15 years. They're not doing that just to be green. They're doing it because they know if they are the last manufacturer making a gasoline-powered vehicle, they'll be like the last buggy whip manufacturer. They know they've got to change. And so we will see a huge change between now and 2035 in the way that we transport ourselves around this country and, in fact, around the world. It gives me great excitement and optimism, even though this is a big problem. Yeah, it's it's heartening to hear you talk about the momentum because it's it's certainly something we see. And, you know, it I think as well as, you know, this is a serious issue, but we've got a way to get through this. So we do. And I'd like to say this, that people say, well, what can I do? Well, um, in television, your viewing is your vote. OK, when you choose to watch my station, you're essentially voting for me or for my station. We have an election coming up shortly and everybody that's listening to this, it's very important that you let your political leaders know how serious this problem is. When it is asked, when when they do um, surveys and say, what are you worried about? And they'll say, well, I'm worried about national security. I'm worried about immigration. I'm worried about the economy. I'm worried about gas prices. I'm worried about the war in Ukraine. And then they say, well, look at climate change is like number eight on the list. No, climate change is making every one of those other things that you're worried about a bigger problem. And so put climate change at the top of the list of what you're worried about because it is affecting every one of those other issues. So when you have a chance to speak with your ballot, make sure that you are voting for people that understand the gravity of this situation and that we have to get some things done. I like to say that in climate change, the physical science is pretty simple. Add heat, get warmer. The political science of finding the solutions is a much heavier lift. And we've got to impress upon our leaders how important this is. Well, listeners aren't going to believe that I didn't prompt you for that because that's what we've been plugging them is that it's important to make your voices heard. So so thanks for that. Well, Mike, just wanted to say thanks for, for coming on and talking to us about a really important topic. I know a topic that's that many folks are interested in. And yeah, appreciate all you're doing in your space to educate folks about climate change and what we need to do to, to get out of this. Jason, it's been a pleasure. Happy to talk to you another time in the future. So gentlemen, I use that term loosely. What were your uh, takeaways from the interview with Mike? I just appreciate the fact that he's always been able to speak openly about the impacts of climate change. Because I, I know there have been other broadcasters in the past um, who have been reluctant to because of pressure from their networks or from others to um, basically not draw a direct correlation between the weather events that are happening and the carbon emissions that we've been creating. So look, I think it's absolutely fantastic that he's been so open with this for so long. And um, hopefully others can take this lead and help connect the dots so that 
the public that listen to him on a daily basis can connect the dots in their minds also. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to solve climate change, you know, at the first steps, having a shared awareness of the problem and, and, you know, and the consequences if we don't deal with it. And so in that respect, Mike and other meteorologists out there play a pretty critical role. And, and so, you know, not only is it great to hear that, you know, he's taken that on, but that he's encouraging other meteorologists to, you know, to follow in his steps. The stakes are way too high to, you know, to remain silent on this. Yeah. And whilst I understand their reluctance to draw direct links, um, I, I think it is important that we, we do keep reminding the public that these events become supercharged because of our impact on the climate. Because there was always a probability that you know, an event, be it a hurricane, a flood, a fire, whatever, could have occurred in the past. But now we've increased the probability of that occurring. I take an example here where you know, we just had our second one in a hundred year flood um, in four years. Right. I mean, it's just crazy. If you look back at the variability of the climate, it's become so much more extreme than it had in the has in the past. And with the forecast increase in temperature now, like we're on our current run rate is for a 2.8 degree uh, increase in global temperatures by the end of this century. Basically, what we're doing is swinging that pendulum even harder. Like I, I always imagine the climate has been a great big pendulum that, that oscillates from wet to dry or hot to cold. And basically what we've done by adding all this carbon dioxide is give that pendulum a great big shove. So right here in Australia right now, we're, we're going through massive floods on the east coast of Australia. And what that means is that, you know, when that pendulum swings back the other way, that those droughts are going to be even worse than we've ever seen before. Um, and and my, con- my greatest concern about it is not even so much the people anymore, but it's it's more the the plant life and the animal life that sustain us on this planet and and their sensitivity to those climate variations because it's not just that that small shift in mean temperature it's those extremes that wipe out crops with frosts or drought or whatever it might be that and it only might only take one one event and the next thing is an entire wheat crop is is wiped out from a frost that happened at a a time of year that the crop was not ready for it yeah it's it's not necessarily a um a positive thought to think about the the end game in terms of these extreme weather events but you know growing our food is growing our food is is obviously what sustains us and you know you while we can, you know, seek shelter as, as humans, the, you know, the plants that we're relying on to feed us can't. I told you Mills was going to bring the heat and he did. You know, Thanks I thought. do think though, it's, <laughs> it's brilliant. I do think it's a brilliant idea to have meteorologists kind of play this role. You know, they're, they're so familiar to everybody and so trusted that it, it just really makes a lot of sense that you would, be able to get this message across through them. And I knew the minute that he started talking about it that they were going to get suppressed, right, because of politics, which is funny because the only it's only political to the people who don't have the science to back up what they're saying, right? It, it's the very people saying, well, you're talking all this politics. And it's like, well, you're the one that made it politics, yeah, so, right? Because so they're just talking science. Uh, there's an article I read in the uh, Bulletin of, of Atomic Scientists by John Morales, who's also a meteorologist. And he talked about how 25 years ago, 
uh, this month, really, when uh, the Clinton administration pulled in like 100 of these broadcast meteorologists into a room. And, and Clinton came in and he said, I want to thank you all for being here. We're really screwed and we need your help really bad. <laughs> How do you like that, Clinton, huh? This is right. Yeah, so, something along like, those lines. Reach it out to you right through the TV screen. He had that ability. It's right in the living room with you. But they had obviously had this idea 25 years ago to do this. And, you know, they, I think immediately they got pushback from some of them. But it worked. Like this, I think, inspired a lot of these meteorologists to start trying to put this message out. And, you know, I think it's it's obviously helped. Well, and I think it is... As Mike points out, I mean, meteorologists are uniquely qualified in that they are, you know, have an education in the sciences and they're talking about weather, which is very related in turn to climate. So, it, yeah, it definitely makes them ideal messengers. You know, I think Mike talked about a number of areas where, you know, climate is, is impacting weather. And, you know, if folks are interested in, in digging more into those interrelationships and how specific events may have been influenced by climate change encourage everybody to go over and check out the uh, World Weather Attribution Initiative, where it's a group of uh, climate scientists from around the world who are taking a look at, you know, these extreme events and then being able to look at how, how climate change had, you know, influenced them. You know, they did analysis uh, just of the, the severe drought that occurred this year in Western Central Europe. And, you know, through the analyses they did, we're able to you know, confirm that the soil moisture drought that took place was really three to four times more likely to occur because of climate change. So obviously, you know, being careful that these events are still occurring, to Thomas's point, but the strength of the events and the likelihood of having a strong event is is what's changing, right? Those those probabilities are really what's changing. On a related note, while it, well, they didn't talk about it on, um, and so, you know, it's hard, I think, to, you know, and maybe feels daunting to think about these extreme events. And I guess I maybe take a little bit of an unorthodox sense of optimism in, in it, which is that the more these events occur and the more that folks like Mike are connecting the dots for people, the more people are motivated together to to push for action, right? Because this stuff is going to happen regardless. Our choice is whether we want to limit the impact of it and we still have that window to do it. And so yeah, again, not wishing, you know, folks are are harmed by these extreme events, but having them and having people connect the dots is is a powerful way to drive, you know, really the the motivation we need as a society to to get government and business to take the action they need to. Yeah, and I, I think part of that is creating the realization amongst the public that these these events aren't just something that's happening to somebody else somewhere else. It's that they're local events that are happening now that are happening to us and will get worse unless we, you know, get off our rumps and go and take some action. And so hopefully that then inspires people because they can see those local effects, because they understand the local effects. And, you know, also at the same time, there are local solutions that can be implemented to try and both mitigate this and make sure that in the long term we, we you know we make this all go away. So Thomas, I think you teed us up here for uh, the question of what can we do, and you know this week we've got two options. Again, kind of staying with the theme of of the midterm elections in the U.S., 
want to encourage everybody to, of course, vote first and foremost. And then for those who have the ability to, to volunteer or donate to climate champions that are in close races. Option two is for those who may not be aware, we have the global UN climate conference called COP27 that is kicking off in Egypt on November 6th. We still have a lot of work to do in terms of climate targets, as folks are, are well aware. These conferences are a great opportunity to put pressure on political leaders to step up commitments. And so I'd like to encourage everybody, regardless of where you are, to tell your president, prime minister, or related leader that we need to strengthen our climate targets and that we need to stop talking about the importance of helping the developing world with climate and get out our checkbooks and start writing checks. That reference is going to date me, but <laughs> the bottom line is we need money flowing. So it doesn't have to be complex. Just head over to social media, create a post calling for the need for stronger climate commitments and some real financial assistance to the developing world and just tag your political leader in the post. So that's that's it for this week's episode. Thanks as always to everybody for tuning in. Come back on the 15th when we'll be digging into high-speed rail and its potential as a climate solution. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. <laughs>